Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast, the podcast where two ladies play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and as such, listener discretion is advised. Of crime. Pew, pew, pew. Woo, woo. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Are you guys whooping with us? I hope so. It's only been a while. <laughs> it's been a long time since we recorded. I will say we have been working on some pretty good content as well as our own lives, it seems, lately. So I don't even know what happened. All of a sudden, it was just like end of September, and I was like, what? The thick. Literally, we ended season one, and I just remember being so incredibly busy putting things together to get done, and then it's like and li- being really tired, and then li- <laughs> life blew up. Yeah, it just blew up. Everything happened at once, and I was like, I'm afraid. Jenny's car almost literally blew up. <laughs> they told me that if I continued driving, my wheel was literally going to fall off. So I said, fuck that. They said, don't drive more than 50 kilometers. So I drove 57. And it didn't fall off. So who knows best? Clearly I do. I live my life on the edge. They said to drive 50. I drive 57. Baddest bitch in the West. (laughs) Y'all bitches ain't got nothing on me. (laughs) Oh, but yes. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, We are very excited to be bringing more content for you. Announcements will be made. We will say in the next couple of months because so far nothing has gone according to plan. Yeah, we're working on some exciting stuff for season two. Some interesting collaborations, perhaps. Collaborations, you say? Some interesting contento. Contento, you say? (laughs) (laughs) And guess what, bitches? It's spooktober. We're about to get spooky up in here. I have been so excited. I have been literally counting down the months until Halloween. This is the best time of year. It really is. And it feels like it's already going by so fast, which makes me very sad. Oh, I've been taking every opportunity to flood our media with hello memes because (laughs) I am here for it. I've already got my costume planned out. I am so excited. I'm going as Hillary Duff. (laughs) As you can tell, big, big changes up in here. Really, we've grown so much. <laughs> Except for not that much, considering I'm going as maybe a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> really, nothing's changed. No, really. <laughs> we're still stressed, we're still tired, and we're still here delivering you subpar content that's hopefully recorded a little nicer, but we never know. It's always a gamble. We'll see. You did move to a new apartment, too, so maybe our uh, sound will be of nicer quality. Oh my god, my other apartment was so terrible, so like... Well, the birds were also constantly screaming, which probably didn't help. I mean, some people add spooky background noise to their podcasts. We add angry birds. the sounds of Satan, so like, who's... What's scarier, really? Mm, That's true. What's scarier? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But even think we reintroduced ourselves. My name is Jen! And my name... Is Emily. We understand it's been a while. You may have forgotten who we are. <laughs> That's fine. I also I forgot. forgot. <laughs> I forgot who I am. And I forgot who you were too. I was like, hello, person of Earth. Would you like to record that thing we do sometimes? <laughs> Would you like to do that uh, mediocre radio show we tune into sometimes? <laughs> and I was like, why, yes, fellow stranger. That sounds quite enjoyable. So we hope you would also like that. <laughs> ah, but since... It is the start of spooky season. Spooktober. Spooktober. The graveyard that's now turned into a raveyard. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> uh, would you like to announce what our topic is for this week? I think we should spin for it. Oh, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to spin for our topic this week. We we've got, got spooky got, options. Yeah, we've got an array of spooky options here, so hopefully we get something super spoopy and yes spoopy i just no (laughs) what is it 
It looks like we're doing vampire crimes. Ooh. You know I love a good vampire. I really do. I mean, I was obsessed with vampires in middle school. Oh, I know. The Twilight craze, that hit me hard, yo. I was going to say, those t-shirts, the one where it's like Team Edward, Team Jacob. <laughs> I had both. I was both. Okay, let's clarify. I was both. Did you layer them? <laughs> so that throughout the day, you could be like, in the morning, I'm Team Edward. But in the afternoon, I'm Team Jacob. No, but if I could go back and change one thing, that would be it. Good. I would hope that would be it. It's the only thing from middle school I wish I could change. I wish I could have changed everything. But I'm being realistic here. If I could just change one thing, that's clearly the most important. Absolutely. Yeah. I would not change your Halloween costumes, though, for that time period. No, they were like... They were they were slaps. They, like, were, they were slaps. You went as a shower one year. I went as a shower, and then I went as like a functional vending machine who could legitimately give out candy. But could you legitimately take people's money? Oh, I would take their money if they gave it to me. <laughs> How did I miss that? There was like a slot where they could put their money in. That's amazing. Did you pretend like you weren't a person in a vending machine at some point just to see what would happen? Just stand over by the other vending machine, just look completely still with my eyes closed, just hoping. <laughs> I really hope so. That's that's the mental image I'm going to keep. Perfect. <laughs> uh, but as we do with this show, we now transform magically our wheel of crime into our wheel of questions. <gasps> it's witchcraft hour over here, guys. That's what that was. Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. Turn my wheel of crime to the wheel of questions. Abracadabra! What <laughs> We still don't have the budget for real sound effects here, guys. Clearly. We're we're trying our best not beatboxers, not sound effect technicians. Definitely not going to be hired as a Foley artist anytime soon. No. (laughs) I'm going to say no. Okay, let's spin and see what our first wheel of question question is. What is the weirdest thing about vampires? I think it depends what kind of vampire you're going for. You know what I mean? Because, like, the weirdest thing probably most people would say about, like, the Twilight era vampires is mm-hmm. that they sparkled. My weirdest thing, though, personally, is that they drink your blood because, like, ew, nasty. But, <laughs> I mean, that's just me. <laughs> well, like, my thing was always, why garlic? I don't know, because they do like they, blood they and they like, not like and they don't like good things in the world. <laughs> they don't like Italians? Like <laughs> I just don't understand the whole garlic. They're thing. Italians that have been cursed. <gasps> We've discovered the true meaning of vampires, guys. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the end of this episode. <laughs> Goodbye. I'm I'm gonna go submit my, our story to National Geographic. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. <laughs> If you could, would you become a vampire? No. I have to drink people's blood. And as I said before, ew, gross. I feel like I'm already partially there because I stayed up all night and I'm very pale. But like, <laughs> I don't drink blood. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I thought that you did. I thought I knew you so well. Weird, right? And then also, you see the selling point for me, is that you could turn into a bat. I feel like that could be very convenient. <laughs> we have so many car troubles. <laughs> You're like, fuck it, I'm just gonna I need, fly. I do. I need a way of transportation that's reliable. Because <laughs> my car? Piece of shit. Not reliable. Bat wings? <laughs> Bitch, let's go to fucking Edmondson, yo. <laughs> let's go on a road trip, girl. Oh, only the best kind. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I couldn't get over the blood thing. It creeps me out on all levels. So no. I've always never been a big fan of blood, though. Like, in biology class in high school, I would, like, literally sit there and just be, like, cringing as they're like, your immune system, or, like, this, like, They mentioned the immune system once, and you're like, like, mentioned anything innard, and I was like, Ew, I don't want to learn about my body. It's nasty. It's gross. <laughs> You're like, I don't like it. Take it away. It creeps me out. <laughs> All right, going for another spin. You ready? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so here's the next question. Okay. Do you believe in vampires? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I feel like that's not a thing that can happen. I'm sorry, bitch, but no. I... <laughs> You're not going to sit here and tell me you believe in vampires. I am not accepting that answer is something legitimate. I don't. But I understand why people believed in them for a long time. Yeah, back in the fucking dark ages when, the- <laughs> when they didn't have any light and only vampires. Half of them died from the plague. They're like, must be vampires or something. I don't know, man. She's really pale and sick. It's them vampires. (laughs) Pretty much. Mm -hmm. But our last question, what do you think? Yeah, let's spin for it. Ready? Who is your favorite vampire? That's a hard question. I don't know that I've ever really thought about this before. Bitch, you have. And number one, it's Edward Cullen. (laughs) It was when I was in sixth grade. Still I've evolved. (laughs) I've evolved, man. Mm. I'm going to go with that guy from Hotel Transylvania. Dracula? (laughs) Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Specifically Hotel Transylvania Dracula. Okay, so Adam Sandler. Yeah. Dracula. Adam Sandler's my favorite vampire. <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> what about you? I was gonna say the original Bram Stoker Dracula. Mm. Good pick. I did read it. It was a bit dry, and the language is definitely outdated, but interesting nonetheless. (laughs) You're like, I hated it, but he's my fave. (laughs) (laughs) I relate to his character a lot. (laughs) What I remember, absolutely. (laughs) It's only been a hundred years, but I'll take it. Oh my god, you are a vampire! You fucking blood-sucking bitch! (laughs) You blood-sucking bitch! I thought the mosquitoes were the only ones out here bothering me. The mosquitoes are my least favorite vampires, let's be real. Actually, yes. Yes, they (laughs) are. Fact. Fact. I can confirm, and I am a journalist sometimes, so I'm credible. On the days I feel like I want to be. Yeah, on the days I feel like it, I'm a journalist. So, there's the facts, bitch. T. There it is. Okay. So then, I think what happens now... I'm not sure. <laughs> ...is the story element of our podcast. Do you have a description or is it too last Oh, minute? good lord. I do have a description. Here we go again. I don't remember. Why'd you guys come back? Please remind me. Yeah, see, we're just as dumb as we were before. <laughs> nothing's changed. It's just been a few months. So really nothing has changed. Yes, we're still exhausted. We still can't read. <laughs> so... Here's a description that I forgot I prepared. A vampire is a being from folklore that subsists by feeding on the vital force, generally in the form of blood, of the living. In European folklore, vampires were undead beings that often visited loved ones and caused mischief or deaths in the neighborhoods. They inhabited while they were alive. They wore shrouds and were often described as bloated and of ruddy or dark countenance. (laughs) Markedly different from today's gaunt pale vampire, which dates from the early 19th century. Vampiritic entities have been recorded in most cultures, and the term vampire was popularized in Western Europe after reports of an 18th century mass hysteria of a pre-existing folk belief in the Balkans and Eastern Europe that in some cases resulted in corpses being staked and people being accused of vampirism. Local variants in Eastern Europe were also known by different names, such as Shtriga in Albania, Vrykolakas, Vrykolakas? Vrykolakas. In Greece and Strigoi in Romania. <laughs> wow, I learned so much. I learned I still can't read. Woo! Yay, Emily. Ah, oh, jeez. 
Okay. Well, I'll go first. Okay. Today, I'm going to tell you about Sean Richard Sellers, mm. who was born on May 18th, 1969, in Corcoran, California. Corcoran, California. <laughs> I can only say it in a southern accent, or I mispronounce it. I might still be mispronouncing it, but... That's that's the best I can. Oh, do. I can guarantee that if you're mispronouncing it, somebody else will come along and tell you just exactly how you're <laughs> mispronouncing it. Yeah. All right. Well, not a lot is known about uh, his early years, but his mother's name was Vonda, and he also had a stepfather named Lee Belafado. So one notable thing that many remember about Sean was that he was voted most likely to become a vampire by his high school class. I wish people voted that for me. Well, maybe you'll take instead that of, back. Instead of least likely to travel. <laughs> Is that what they did? Yeah. You don't remember that? No. You were most likely to work at Tim Hortons or whatever that was. No, I just won the most Tim Hortons awards. Oh, yeah. I got voted most likely to never travel because <laughs> I didn't have a passport. <laughs> I was also voted most likely to forget my agenda. You were voted that. Also accurate. What a lame thing to be voted. Yeah. They should have said phone. Because then it would have been accurate and up to date. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Anyways, bitch. Now that I've been properly insulted. Um, he claimed to have read the Satanic Bible by Anton Levy hundreds of times between the ages of 15 and 16 years old. As a sophomore at Putnam City North High School, he also drank blood during lunch and wrote notes to Satan using his own blood. In his own blood, he wrote, I renounce God, I renounce Christ, I will serve only Satan to my enemy's death. And he's in high school? Yeah. That sounds like some friends of ours. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> He and his friends were said to have willingly drunk from each other's veins, and Sean also drank his own blood. That's so fucking nasty. During rituals. I know. Good lord. Disgusting, hey? And Sean was allegedly addicted to the game Dungeons and Dragons, and he also told his classmates that demons were influencing him. Ah, yes. Also relatable. That is very relatable. <laughs> Definitely sounds like some people we knew. <laughs> in 1985, Robert Paul Bauer, a 32-year-old Circle K convenience store clerk, refused to sell an underage Sean beer. What was his reaction to this, Emily? To lose his fucking marbles. <laughs> well, Sean... How the... dare you sell an underage teenager who drinks blood liquor? Rawr! Rawr! Well, Sean claims to have been possessed by a demon named Ezerate at the time. So, you know, logically, because the clerk refused to sell him beer, he shot and killed him. Oh, nice. So he did lose his fucking marbles. <laughs> he did. However, he seemingly got away with the crime and really wasn't a suspect in the investigation. But six months later, just days before his 17th birthday on March 5th, 1986, Sellers killed his mother and stepfather, Vonda and Lee Belafado, while they were asleep in their bedroom of their Oklahoma City home. Wearing only underwear to limit the blood splatter on himself, he first shot his stepfather. The shot awoke his mother, whom he shot in the face. That is, I was going to say rude. It's beyond rude. That is psychotic and cruel. <laughs> It's a little rude, I guess. <laughs> In the face. Well, that's rude. <laughs> so, Sellers tried to disguise his guilt by arranging the crime scene to look as if an intruder had committed the killings. But unfortunately for him, this didn't work and he was put on trial because police were like, Bish, you ain't fooling no one. Right. It's like, okay, so some random intruder breaks into this house and kills them and you just happen to not know what's going on, hey? You, the person who also lives at the house? No idea, hey? Yeah. You, the one who carries around the satanic Bible and drinks blood? Really? I would <laughs> seem so innocent. Not to judge people who maybe carry around a satanic Bible and drink blood, but like... No, if you drink blood, you're nasty. I feel confident saying that. Is that like... 
I feel like that's probably a kink thing now that I think about it. I feel like that's probably not to kink shame you, but like if that's your kink, I'm sorry, but we can never be friends because that <sighs> literally revolts me. I just because I will literally throw up. <laughs> I will throw up so hard, man. It's not so hard. What else is gonna <laughs> <laughs> oh. But no, thinking about it, I'm pretty sure that is. I, I've never researched I it. Know. I don't want to think about it. It creeps me out to no avail. I will say, though, if you're already being suspicious, though, and, like, and like that whole thing about the store, too, they would have had a suspicion. Yeah, they probably did. So, right? like, it was probably, like, kind of, like, one thing after the other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? At his trial, Sellers claimed he was a practicing Satanist at the time of the murders and that the demonic possession caused him to murder his victims. Mm-hmm. The jury refused to consider either claim, and Sellers was found guilty of multiple homicides and sentenced to death in 1986. Oof. At the time, Oklahoma law did not give jurors the option of giving a life sentence without the possibility of parole, which became a choice in 1987, just one year later. Mm. One juror later said that the jury felt Sellers would be paroled in 7 to 14 years, and this prison term was not lengthy enough, so the jury opted for the death penalty. Other jurors denied that it was part of the deliberations, and in a confession letter he wrote from prison, he reflected on this period of his life. Um, his attorneys also urged that Sellers was addicted to the game Dungeons and Dragons. But that doesn't even mean anything. Like, when you think about it, there, you, there's a lot of these crimes where they're like, oh, well, they worship the devil and they play Dungeons and Dragons. Obviously, they're criminals. And this isn't even the first time I've heard this. I know. How ridiculous. I know. And so, like, although that he, like, used that as part of his defense initially, he later would write that the game had no part in his crimes and that using my past as a common example of the effects of this game is either irrational or completely crazy. Because it is. So, I'm going to read you the letter that he wrote from jail reflecting on this whole thing. It's titled, The Confessions of My Crimes. Mm. To the family and friends of Robert Paul Bauer. Bonda Maxine Belafato, my mother, and Paul Lee Belafato, my stepfather. I must apologize for not doing this long ago. All I can offer for you is that I did not understand your need for this. I didn't know it was important because no one ever told me it was. And more than that, many people work hard to keep barriers between us, whether it be my attorneys who try and protect me legally, or my friends who don't understand the pain I've caused, or even you who never came to ask me why or how, or see if there was any true sorrow in me. If I had known this was important, I would have done it long ago. Please forgive me first for that. This is not a testimony. I know that you don't care about my spiritual state and that you don't want to hear me get past my crimes. To you, I know that it appears as if I've shrugged them off. I haven't. This is my confession and it has no other purpose but to offer you the answers you deserve and deserved long ago. I also need you to understand I'm offering only explanations. I'm not in any way trying to pass blame to any other person. There are reasons why I did what I did, but I'm still the one who did it, and the responsibility, no matter what the reason, is still mine. I was not a cruel person. I did not commit murder because I enjoyed causing pain. I had pets all my life, and I wanted to be a veterinarian. I never was a bully or provoked fights or picked on people weaker than I was. In fact, I got into a few fights standing up for people who were being picked on. When we were kids, we just feel things. When we're adults, we look back on our childhood and we figure out some of what we are feeling and why. There was a lot of anger in me as a kid. I didn't know that, but it was there. Mom had me at 16 and when she was 21, I was 5. I don't remember much before 5, but at 5, she left me with my father, my papa, Jim Blackwell, his wife, Geneva, grandma to me, and papa's parents, great-grandpa and great-grandma to me. She left. She met Lee, dad to me, and she was gone. I only saw her when we when she managed to make it in every few weeks, and every time she and dad left, I smiled, waved goodbye, and went to the bathroom, closed the door, and cried. Every time, and I have never once let anyone see me do it. In school, I was Sean Sellers, but my grandparents were named Blackwell, and my mom and dad were named Belafato. I don't know what the heck a divorce was or why I had a different name. All I knew was that 
in the little bitty town, I was the only kid whose name was not the same as their parents. I was different, and in grade school, no child wants to be different. At age eight, mom and dad moved me to Los Angeles to live with them. This is no exaggeration. The school I went to in LA was in the was as big as the town I lived in with Papa and Grandma, and I hated it. Kids speaking Spanish, us living in Dad's Aunt Terry's apartment complex where no kids were allowed, so I had to be quiet all the time. I went from running all over the place, climbing trees, knowing everyone, to staying in or beside the apartment complex, being quiet, knowing no one, and being yelled at all the time. Aunt Terry's house was not a place for kids, and we ate dinner there quite a bit. I was always being yelled at for either being too noisy or for fear that I was about to break something. At school, I was bullied by two boys two feet taller than me in groups. That was my encounter with gangs. A white boy from a tiny town in Oklahoma along Chinagos in Los Angeles. I'd never been afraid of going to school before. Then one day at the apartment complex, some older relative molested me. He got me to suck his balls. I never told anybody that either. I thought I'd get in trouble and was ashamed. We didn't stay there long and I went back to Oklahoma to Papa and Grandma But there was a lot of anger in me over all of that. Over the next few years, mom and dad kept picking me up and moving me here and there. We never lived in one house more than a few months or in one town more than a year. So I had several different schools and never made any lasting friendships that built up a lot of resentment. There was always little thing like mom's temper. She was always spanking me with a belt, but she also just hit me. Slapped me in the face, mashed my mouth, a flat palm, straight on blow to the lips that matched my lips into my teeth. She did that when I got mouthy and made my lips swell. It always shut me up though. She hit me in the head with wooden mixing spoon, butcher knife handles, hairbrushes, whatever she had in her hand. Usually it was because I said something wrong or if she was cutting my hair, I was fidgeting. Smack. Be still, damn it. I never knew what would get me smacked, so I learned to be very careful around mom. I walked on eggshells and avoided her when I could. I tried to live in my room as much as possible. I hated her as much as I loved her. So by the time I became a teenager and rebellious, there was a lot of anger in me. Sometimes it welled up and just exploded. I'd go to my room and just tear something apart or go outside and kick a tree until my foot hurt. When I was 13, dad's nephew Stephen came to live with us. I liked Stephen a lot. He was 18. He introduced me to ninjutsu. I got into the martial arts and ninja stuff and saw something in Stephen I longed for. Dad liked him. Stephen was crass, tough. He liked the military and, and he and dad would talk quite a bit. Dad never spent any time alone with me. We never did anything together. The closest we ever came to was when he let me help him fix something around the house. I never consciously made this decision, but looking back, I realize now I wanted to be like Steven so dad would like me. I got really into jiu-jitsu stuff because of that, but I didn't want to do it what I was supposed to. I ended up living with my Aunt Debbie and Uncle James for a while, and James thought it was all nonsense. He ridiculed me, made fun of me, and thought I was quite foolish for spending money on martial arts lessons. He laughed and teased me when he heard my instructor had gotten his jaw broken in a bar fight. All that plus the fact I'd been moved yet again to another school in the middle of the year only added to my anger, and the books I was finding on nujitsu were demonstrating ways to kill people. Nujitsu was never a martial art of self-defense. Today, it has evolved into that, but originally the ninjas were soldiers whose art was assassination, and that was it. Nothing else. The books I was reading about nujitsu talked a lot about killing people. There were photographs showing step-by-step demonstrations with instructions on how to kill someone with a knife, a stick, or your bare hands. Not self-defense demonstrations, but it was always a way to sneak up and kill someone. The philosophy of it was zen. When First Blood came out, we all went to see it. Me, Mom, Dad, and Steven. Steven and Dad liked it. When Rambo, the novel, the sequel to the First Blood came out, Steven bought it. I read it. John Rambo was a Buddhist. He chose that religion because Zen taught him how to kill without suffering from a consequence. The Zen in these martial art books taught the same thing. It was a philosophy that said karma rules life. It is the karma of or fate of some people to die and the karma of others to kill them. No big deal. It just is. 
Dad had killed people in Vietnam. Being able to do so and had not bothered him was a sign of strength to him. The first scene in First Blood where Rambo breaks down and cries, that was weak to Dad. When he heard Martin Sheen had a nervous breakdown making Apocalypse Now, he said, The movie was nothing. He should have been there for real. And that was his way of saying the actor was weak. I wanted to be like my dad, and as crazy as it sounds, a part of what that was to have the strength to kill someone and not be bothered by it. I didn't want to kill anyone. I just wanted to have the, that strength. I wanted to be like dad and be able to shrug and say it's not hard to kill someone like I'd heard him say to Steven and know with conviction he's done it. When I was 15, we were living in Colorado where I loved it. I was involved in civil air patrol and had become a cadet commander of my squadron. Dad was proud of me for all I was accomplishing in CAP and I pretty much set aside the ninja stuff. Then we moved again. I literally begged mom and dad not to, to let me stay anything, but we came back to Oklahoma and everything changed. That was the last straw for me. For the first time in my life, I had been really, really happy in Colorado and it was all gone. Something just broke inside of me and all my anger boiled into contempt. For a while, I quit trying to make new friends at school. I just did my work without talking to anyone. That's when I got involved in the occult. I met a witch, learned about black magic, and got interested in Satanism. I was mad at God. I didn't like God because of how I perceived him, and the stuff I read on Satanism said two things that appealed to me. Number one, it offered freedom. And number two, it promised power to control my life and others. I'd been carted all around the state and Colorado all of my life. Slapped, smacked, hit, and had whatever I wanted ignored. I was mad, and the idea of controlling my life to get what I wanted was like candy to me. Plus, I looked at the way everyone around me lived and the stuff I read in Satanic Bible in principle was lived out in the lifestyle by mom and dad and everyone else I knew. No one was a real Christian. We didn't go to church. We didn't talk about God. Mom and dad cussed like truck drivers they had been for so many years. Mom bought me a box of condoms when I was 13 and dad told me to use them. We'd stolen stuff out of the trucks dad drove and I'd seen mom lie to people's faces to get a deal or sell something. My aunt and uncles and mom and dad smoked pot and bought speed. So what was the point of pretending to serve God when we all lived like Satanists? Satanism taught me that I should make my own rules, live by in life, and that's just what everyone I'd grown up did. So I got very involved in Satanism. I truly thought it was an honest way to live, and the rituals of it would even enable me to control my life. Even then, I didn't want to kill anyone. That desire didn't start until later. As I began to do all those satanic rituals, I found myself having some strange problems. As a kid, I'd hear voices in my head, a part of the reason why I never told anyone about the incident of my sexual molestation in LA because it seemed like my idea from things I'd heard in my head. These voices were just part of the way I thought and I never gave them any consideration. But as I did these rituals, these voices changed. They started sounding different and being a Satanist, I decided they were demons and it was no big deal. Demons, the beings that would do the things I wanted done. They were the keys to the power Satanism promised me, so I wasn't afraid of them. Other things began to happen too, though. I began to have blackout periods where I couldn't remember what I'd been doing. I felt so empty inside, cold. All that anger which had been turned to contempt was now becoming a cold hatred toward mom specifically, but the proxy toward dad. I need you to know this before I continue. I tried to get out of Satanism once. I didn't like what was happening inside of me and I was scared. I called a prayer line on a TV and talked to a Catholic priest. I went to a Christian prayer meeting, but I'd sold my soul to Satan and I was convinced I was doomed. No one knew how to help me because no one had any experience at all. I really wanted out, and when I discovered I couldn't get out, I had only two choices that I saw. Number one, I was going to hell like all the other hypocrites who lived according to the tenets of Satanism, but didn't worship Satan. Or number two, worship Satan still and rule over these hypocrites in hell. If I was going to hell, I was at least going to be a ruler. So I got back into the occult, my god, how I wish I hadn't, but I did. After that, things got worse. My mind was a jumble. I told my mom I thought I was going crazy. I told it to a teacher at school, Miss Noel, my drama teacher, too. 
Richard Howard, my best friend, and I had begun to talk about bizarre and evil things together. I honestly don't know when it started or why. We are both involved in Satanism and Richard seemed to be the one to bring this stuff up. He talked about raping and killing an old girlfriend of his, torturing her, of stealing the cash from the money bag his boss took to the bank at night and killing her. I fell right along with him. I enjoyed talking about this evil as much as he did. We planned robberies and rapes and violence, never once with any intention of doing them. We'd just say, wouldn't it be a kick to do this? And we'd laugh about it. The closest we ever came to actual planning was in the matter of his boss and that money bag. We drove out to where the bank drop slot was and scooped it out and thought about the crime. Richard wanted me to do it because I was the one into ninjutsu and I could sneak up on her. Somehow one night during one of those conversations, right after we'd done a satanic ritual in the yard beside his house, we decided to kill Robert Paul Bauer. I wish I could tell you how it came up, but I can't. Honestly, don't remember anything after the ritual except a haze of images of me and Richard talking. Richard got the guns, his grandfather's .357 revolver, and it was loaded with five shells that looked like hollow points to me, and a .22 rifle of his brother's. We talked several times of killing his girlfriend's father, Al Hawks. Richard wanted Al dead because he hadn't beaten Tracy one night, bruising her eye and face when he caught her on the phone with Richard. I think we were going to kill Al that night, but for some reason we were going to kill Robert Bauer first. That seems stupid to me now. It makes no sense, but that's what I think we were doing. I was going to kill Robert Bauer and Richard was going to kill Al. Maybe so each of us could have a murder and couldn't tell on the other? I don't know. My mind was too gone to remember it. Richard chose Robert Bauer. I didn't even know the man. I had said that I wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. I'd said it that many times. But that was not the reason we were going to kill Mr. Bauer. He worked the midnight shift at a very remote Circle K store and one night because Richard stopped and talked to him a lot on the way home from seeing Tracy. Richard thought Robert would sell him beer. When we got to the store, Mr. Bauer refused and that made Richard mad. That hadn't qualified him as someone we'd like to kill and we'd talked about him in those conversations about killing. That night we just decided to do it and it would be an offering to Satan to prove ourselves. We went to the store and Richard talked to Mr. Bauer for probably an hour. We bought a fountain drinks, questioned him about not having a camera in the store. Wasn't that dangerous? Someone might kill and rob him. Robert wasn't concerned. There was only $50 in the cash register at any one time. The rest was in the safe and no one was going to kill him for that. Richard and I gave each other amused glances. A few customers came and went. Finally, as Robert came out of the store to look at Richard's clutch pedal, since we'd just put a new clutch in his car and Robert also needed one, Richard looked over at me and said, let's do it. I took the revolver and followed them back in, but I froze before I got inside. I went around the side of the store. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. Then the voice spoke inside my head and said I was weak. I was a coward and something blinked inside my mind. That's the only way I can describe it. One second I was shaking and saying I couldn't do this and then blink. I was cold, determined, heartless, and evil. I walked back around straight and tall, opened the door, and stepped in. Richard saw me and held something in the aisle where he stood. How much is this? he asked. Robert Bauer was taking a sip of coffee. He appeared over the brim of the cup, swallowed, and said something, and set the cup on the counter. As he stood up, I raised the gun over the counter, aimed at his head, and just as he looked at me, fired. He flinched, and it missed. He ran, and I fired again, but he slipped and fell, and I missed again. I heard him cry out, though. He grabbed a green windbreaker, and which he wore when stocking the walk in refrigerators, and I held up in both hands, hiding behind it as he ran bent over 
back and forth behind the counter. Richard came up, up to the counter, and he ran from him and almost into me. I saw his eyes over that jacket, filled with panic, and I heard Richard say, Do it. I fired, and Robert Paul Bauer flew backward, landing on his side. Blood splattered everywhere. He didn't move. When I turned around, Richard was leaning over the counter, trying to figure out how to open the cash register. I said, Go, but he didn't move. I took a few steps and said go and he sprang out the door. We got into the car and left and the car we laughed about it. In a way that hurts worse than the deed. I always wanted to skip that part but I will not. I won't allow myself that. We laughed about it. We killed that man and we giggled like it was a fantastic prank since he'd had no clue what we'd come there for. I didn't know why but we didn't go to Al Hawk's house afterwards like we planned. Richard put his grandfather's gun back. We emptied it and pressed the bullets and shells into the ground in the backyard. After that, I had killed someone. Sometimes I wanted to tell dad so he'd be proud of my strength. He didn't see me as strong, not weak. And sometimes I didn't even remember doing it. I didn't live under constant awareness that I'd killed someone. Most of the time, I didn't even know what I'd done. It was that blinking in my mind, the person who couldn't do it didn't know how he did then blink the person who did do it remembered that's the best i can explain that when i was that person that murderer i felt superior i looked down on people with the secret knowledge that i had killed and was capable of killing them too when i was not that person i was just a confused teenager going to school working learning to drive still full of anger and counting the days when i'd be 18 so i could move out of that house Things turned very, very stressful at home. I met and fell in love with a girl named Angel, and Mom hated her. I mean, hated her. Angel was a high school dropout. She was 15, she smoked, and I think Mom saw too much of herself in Angel and hated that. Mom had gotten pregnant with me at 15. She badmouthed Angel all the time to me, called her a bitch, a little tramp, a loser, and did all that she could to keep me from seeing her. After a big argument one day with Richard at the house as mom and dad were getting ready to go with some friends, mom told me, you want to leave? Go, pack your shit, and get the fuck out. While they were gone, that's exactly what Richard and I did. I moved out. That night, dad came to work, took the keys to my pickup, and told me to get my ass home after work. The next day, I was forced to move back in. Mom was ready to ship me off to California to Rick Sellers, my real father, but my dad said no. I was moving back and I was going to do what I was told. Things became even worse after that. Mom ranted about Angel. We even got into a physical fight over her. It wasn't much of a fight. Mom wailed on me like she always did, but I was bigger than her and I just pushed her, all the while blinking and getting worse in my mind. I couldn't get away. I couldn't move. I decided to kill my mother. I bought some rat poison and put it in her coffee, but it didn't work even when I served her three cups of it. After that blink and everything was different. We argued, but I just wanted to leave. I didn't want to kill her, then blink, and I'd be planning her death. One night that blink happened when I came home from work. I was the cold murderer who had killed Robert Bauer, and I went to their room before they went to bed and took Dad's forty-four revolver from the drawer beside hit the bed. I put it in my room and waited for them to go to bed. Dad talked to me about rebuilding the engine of my pickup together. When they were in bed, I went to my room, did a ritual, dressed only in my black underwear, and then crept quietly into their room. There was nothing but cold hatred in me. There was some sense of, Sean needs to be free and this will free him. This is the only way. That was not conscious thought, just a sensation. It's like that was the motivation behind it. I wasn't committing murder. I was removing an obstacle from my way. I was knocking down a door to a prison cage. All I felt, however, was coldness. I put the gun close to dad's head and then fired, then immediately fired again at mom's head. Her head raised up, neck cranking backward, and I fired again. Then I laid down the gun in the hallway and went back to the room. I felt relieved. I felt like a great weight had been taken off my shoulders. I went to the shower and the blinking started again. There was a lot of blinking, so much so that nothing is clear. I ended up at Richard's house and we planned what to do for the police. 
but it wasn't all an act. There would be a blink and cry, real tears and grief, and then another blink and a calm cold putting it on a show. We lived for 12 years now with the memories, knowledge, and grief of those three murderers. This doesn't matter. After years of working, the blinking is gone, and I remember everything, both parts of me. The stuff I don't remember is when I think there was too much blinking, like a light switch going on and off. Flick, 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 on, flick, 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 off. I remember the on and off parts, but not the flick parts. What I remember horrifies me. I see Robert Bauer's eyes panic struck. I imagine the sheer terror of his last moments alive, and I wonder how long he'd laid there dying. Was he conscious? How could have I done that? I hear the words Dad said about rebuilding my pickup's engine together. We would have done that together. We would finally have done something together. I see Christmas dinners that never happened, my mom with a grandchild on her lap. These are the ghosts I live with and I hate myself for all I became and did. I am not just sorry. I am haunted. I think of all the people I hurt, of all the moments I stole from your lives, and I know I deserve to die. It's not right for me to go on living with these three people didn't. All I can offer you are the answers to why I did it and to tell you it destroyed my soul when I did. No matter how long I live or where I live, I destroyed myself when I killed Robert and dad and mom. I beg for your forgiveness. I know I do not deserve it and I know you hate me and always will, but I beg you, please know that I'm sorry for it. Forgive me for the pain I caused. From this, I hope you can understand what happened and why, but I will not offer any justifications or mitigation, no matter the reasons, no matter the explanations. I'm the one responsible for my actions and I take full blame upon myself alone. I also didn't write this to condemn Richard for his part in it. I know I'm the one who had the gun in my hand and how the law worked and it's irrelevant. I only told it because it's the honest way it all happened. Please know for as long as I live that I will be haunted with the sorrow for what I did and when I die, I will have counted it more mercy than I deserved to have lived the life that I did. Until that day, I want you to know I will spend my life trying to do things that will touch the world in a good way to give back to all I took from you. That's the only thing I can offer with my hands and my heart. It's simply all I have. Please forgive me, Sean Sellers. That was long. Um, so Sellers became a Christian while in prison. His friends started a website on his behalf and he campaigned for clemency based on his religious conversion, age, and involvement in Satanism. While on death row, he made numerous appearances in the mass media, appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show, and on a notorious segment of Geraldo about Satanism. He appeared in documentaries about Satanism and serial killers for 48 hours, and he married in prison on February 14, 1995, but the marriage was annulled in 1997. Seller's step-siblings doubted that his conversion to Christianity was a sincere one. Of his many surviving family members, only his step-grandfather believed his conversion to be genuine. However, the prison chaplain believed that he had truly converted. During his 1999 appeal to the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, he contended that he had multiple personality disorder, but the appeal court ruled that it was uncontroverted as evidence of Seller's religious conversion and he may indeed suffer from multiple personality disorder. The panel of judges concluded that while Sellers might have been insane at the time of his crimes, the claim was made too late to be raised on the appeal. So then basically a bunch of other stuff happened, but and like a lot of people were kind of rallying behind him at this point because they're like, he was a child when he committed these crimes and he was also perhaps mentally ill. Mm -hmm. But they essentially said that doesn't matter. He's still going to be sentenced to death. And the United States is one of the only other countries known to have executed a juvenile offenders besides Bangladesh, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, and Yemen. Those are the only other places that execute juveniles. Hmm. Psychiatric experts scoffed at his claim, arguing that any true mental illness would have been diagnosed soon after his arrest and not seven years later. Prison officials also cast doubt on his mental illness by saying they saw him rehearsing the evidence of mental illness and receiving coaching from his attorneys. But he made the same insanity claim to his clemency board, but the board refused to consider the issue. Um, and then he took it to the Supreme Court, but they also denied his appeal. 
Two days before his execution, he filed two more appeals. The first appeal in federal district court accused the state pardon and parole board of violating his civil rights. And he argued that the pardons board decision were not impartial and were instead really biased. The appeal was denied. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection on February 4th, 1999 at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary at 12.17 a.m., five minutes after the drugs were injected. For his last meal, he had Chinese food, egg rolls, sweet and sour shrimp, and batter fried shrimp. He began his final statement by addressing his step-siblings. In the final minutes before injection, he sang modern Christian music and then said loudly, Here I come, Father. I'm coming home. And then he turned to the warden and said, Let's do it, Gary. Let's... Let's do it, Gary? Let's get it on. Oh, my God. Sellers finally sang his last words, Set my spirit free that I might praise thee. Set my spirit free that I might worship thee. His step-siblings objected the substance of his final remarks, and instead of apologizing or mentioning their mother, he only addressed the fact that he would feel the same. It is very presumptuous that he would know how he would still feel, said his stepsister. Sellers was the first and remains the only person executed in the U.S. for a crime committed under the age of 17 since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1976. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruling Roper versus Simmons later decided it was unconstitutional to execute an individual for a crime committed under the age of 18. While in prison, he authored two books. One was a book of stories and poems titled Shilador, and the other was a co-written book. It was an autobiography called Web of Darkness. Mm. And one online review of his book said, Web of Darkness was allegedly written by Sean Sellers, who at the time was on death row for murder. Since the time of the book's initial publication, Sellers has been executed for his crimes. Sellers' claim to fame are his contentions that one, his involvement in Satanism helped him turn to murder, and two, that he became a new man due to his jailhouse conversion to evangelical Christianity. Sellers story takes up less than 20 pages of this 173 page book the rest is a weak collection of chapters on various subjects drugs alcohol suicide occultism that have been amply covered in other sources the apparent purpose of this book is to warn teens and parents about satanism and related phenomena for a convicted murderer seller writes with remarkable altitude of ignorance and arrogance. The entire book is permeated with a sense of strict religious fundamentalism. Sellers, for example, condemns Hindus and Buddhists as idolaters. He even advocates book burning as a positive activity. He attacks the popular Dungeons and Dragons game, rock music, and other cultural phenomena. The book is full of undocumented quotes and ridiculous statements. There is also an air of paranoia to the book. Consider the following quote. Police may endeavor to downplay evidence of Satanism and crimes due to public reaction. He even alleges that the Washington Monument is a satanic symbol and most disturbingly, he seems to be evading responsibility for his own crimes, claiming he was completely possessed by demonic forces when he murdered. This is a sad book. And that is my story, folks. What are your thoughts? I don't know, because, like, his letter that he wrote is very sad. And, like... It's not convincing. It's not. But it's sad. Like, because I think there's, like, some things in there that are probably true, like... That he probably was, like, neglected and, like, who knows. If, oh, of like- course, right? There's always indicating, like, well, not factors, but there's always things that contribute to a people, like, feel people feeling and behaving a certain way. But it's also mixed in with things that are probably not true. I don't know. I don't really know how to feel it. All I know is he was voted most likely to be a vampire and... <laughs> yeah. And beware of your neighborhood vampires, maybe? And if anyone in your high school was voted that, I would be careful. Yikes. All right, well, tell me your story now, Em. Are you ready for my fluff piece? I'm ready for your fluff. (laughs) I am going to tell you the story of the first ever vampire. Ooh. And it is not Dracula. Oh, interesting. I know. Now the beginning. Vlad the Impeller, Elizabeth Bathory, and Akasha are all world-renowned supposedly real vampires, but on the British Isles, none are more famous than the vampire of Kroglin Grange. More famous. 
<laughs> so famous i've never heard of him i know because i was like oh yes you know vlad elizabeth bathory Kroglin. Anyways, but yes, this is the story of the Kroglin vampire. Old Kroglin made his appearance known in the 1890s when his exploits were documented by Augustus Hare in his book Story of My Life in all capital letters, which is going to be the name of my autobiography. So since it's publishing, generations of Van Helsing hopefuls have tried to track down this mythical beast. Whether just the work of fiction or just too crafty to be found, those who have tried to hunt him down have all come up empty-handed. So the vampire of Crogland Grange made his home in Cumberland, England, a historic county in the northwest England, Cumberland, sits just south of, of the Scottish border. The town of Crogland is a quaint, picturesque village with a small post office and a single pub, and is the very definition of an English village. If you live there, please confirm. So our story begins in the early 1800s. Brothers Edward and Michael Cronswell were renting a home in Crogland Grange with their sister Amelia. The three immediately fell in love with the town and quickly became a part of life in Crogland. Despite only being temporary residents, they soon knew everybody in the town and all the townsfolk knew them. One night after entertaining guests, Amelia retired to her room for the evening. Amelia's room faced the churchyard. Before going to bed, she made a habit of looking out her window and taking one last look at the grounds before going to sleep. That night, she saw something that she had never seen before. Two strange lights in the darkness that moved in sync with each other. She was quickly gripped by horror as she realized that the two lights were eyes in the night moving between the trees, but never diverting their gaze from her. Now, just think about that for a second. You look out your fucking window and you just see reflective eyes bouncing through the trees through the bushes that's literally my nightmare i know walking towards you i was like no thank you <laughs> i don't want any pot in this actually no, thank you so the eyes began to make their way towards the window amelia wanted to scream but her voice was paralyzed with fear <laughs> <laughs> She wanted to go to the door and run from the room, but she was frozen where she stood. Then, without explanation, the figure turned and began making its way around the house. Amelia found her courage and ran to the door. With a hand on the knob, she froze once more, and this time she heard a sound. A scratching on her window. I know. <laughs> she turned around and looked back at the window, and that's when she saw it. A hideously ugly face with red eyes and sharp teeth. Pressed against her window, she watched as it drew a long nail and scratched the wooden frame against the window. Engulfed by fear, Amelia ran back to bed and covered herself with a sheet because that will protect you. I she mean, that's also my logic. I'm like, if I'm under my covers, nothing can hurt if me. If I can't see it, it can't see me. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> she soothed herself in the knowledge that the window was locked and then the creature was safely on the other side. <laughs> fucking weird thing i'm in here and you're out there you can't get me now <laughs> can't see me sucker right amelia lowered the sheet from her face and as the creature continued to scratch at the window to her horror she realized the monster was picking away at the wood behind the lock <laughs> your face killed me dead oh my god you like looked and you're like, that's fucking horrifying. <laughs> Don't can tell you, me that. Can you imagine seeing that and being like, hey, hey, you can't get in, closing your blinds, crawling into bed, and then you're laying there and you look over at the window, it's picking at the lock? I would throw up. I would be like, sir? Sir, please stop, sir. <laughs> sir, I am not getting out of this bed. You stop that right now. No more picking at the lock. <laughs> it's stay close, sir. <laughs> Gosh. She watched as he slowly picked away enough of the wood to make a hole big enough to stick his finger through and unlatch the window. That's so rude. <laughs> I like how I'm like throwing up and laughing at the same time. I'm very conflicted about this whole situation. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe he picked through a window and now his like fingers like nee, 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 at the lock. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, but that's actually horrifying. And, and it makes me want to die. And I literally am shivering inside. <laughs> I am quite waking i'm like ah, stop it no more with the window open the beast 
made made his way inside and slowly crept towards Amelia's bed. Still frozen with fear and unable to speak, Amelia could do nothing but watch as it made its way to her bed with a single bony finger, turned her head to the side, and exposed her neck. The hideous monster opened its mouth as it lowered down to her neck and sunk its sharpened teeth through her skin. At that moment, Amelia found her voice and screamed as loud as she had ever screamed in her life. But see, what broke you out of not screaming was it literally putting teeth in your neck. I feel like I would have figured that out before. You would think. You would hope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you look so disgusted. This is great. (sighs) So, her brothers ran into the room almost immediately. Seeing Edward and Michael standing in the doorway, the vampire of Crowglin Grange made a hasty exit out the window. As Michael tended to his sister, Edward went searching for the intruder. Edward searched for hours but found nothing. In shock from her encounter, Amelia insisted that the three of them leave Kroglin. Although shaken by the attack, Amelia had every intention of returning and did so the following year. Once again accompanied by her brothers, Amelia rented the same home and stayed in the same room that she was attacked in the previous year, which is not what you do. That is so dumb. Like, literally. Amelia, bitch, listen. No, she's literally the dumbest. Stop. Stop that right now, please. For the love of God, do not do that. This is a PSA. Please stop. <laughs> Amelia's like that friend that you have when you go out and there's like a weird guy at the bar and she's like, I'm gonna go talk to him. He looks like he's lonely. And you're like, no, Amelia. Bitch. No, please. And then you turn around for a second and suddenly he's got her by the hand and they're leaving the bar and you're like, Amelia, stop. (laughs) You're such a dumb Why are you tempting danger and why are you so fucking dumb? Like, I can't handle it right now. (laughs) Girlfriend, why? Ray. Oh, good lord. So, Amelia's dumb and she went back to the same house, okay? (laughs) Yes. So, months passed with no incident. But then... (laughs) One night, while she slept, Amelia was awoken by that same familiar scratching sound on her window, to which at that point, I would just throw myself out of it. I'd be like, wow, I was dumb enough to come back to the same room, in the same house, a year later, and now it's happening again. You know what I would do? I would rip open those blinds, look (laughs) that vampire in the eyes, and be like, dude, no means no. (laughs) Get the hell out of here. You see, I had the same thought, but mine was just pterodactyl scream at him. (laughs) 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 Emily, why? We're going to have to cut that part out, I think. Anyways. <laughs> but that's what I would do. I would just, like, literally bring my brother in the room, lay him in bed, and go take his bed. <laughs> be so. Be like, huh, hope you like it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So she looked up and saw the same hideous face looking at her and those same bony fingers scratching away at the wood behind the lock. This time, Amelia was not frozen in fear, because apparently she grew a personality and a sense of fear in the last year. <laughs> She immediately found her voice and screamed out. Her brothers quickly entered with pistols at the ready. See, that makes me think it's a plan then. Well, maybe. Maybe they just sleep with pistols. They're trying to trap the vamp. (laughs) Trap. That can be our new band. Tramp the vamp. (laughs) With an accent. Tramp the vamp. Tramp the vamp. The creature ran back into the night as the brothers gave chase. Seeing an opportunity, Michael raised his weapon and fired, hitting the vampire in the leg. Despite its injury, the creature was still able to scale the wall and disappear into a family vault. The next morning, the brothers called upon the residents of Krogland to open the vault. Inside, they saw that almost all the coffins had been ripped open, the cadavers inside shredded and strewn about the vault. However, one coffin in the middle remained untouched. The brothers approached it and noticed that the lid was loose. They removed the lid and saw inside the same hideous beast that they had chased the night before. Its skin was brown and mummified and appeared far more shriveled than Amelia had remembered. But on its leg was the unmistakable bullet wound that it had received from Michael's pistol. The villagers removed the body from the vault and set it on fire. Amelia's encounter with the vampire of Krogland Grange was the first and the last to have the most extensive encounter ever recorded. However, over the years, others have reported sightings or have heard secondhand encounters with the monster. To this day, tourists travel to Krogland. Find the truth, however, the townsfolk there don't say much, preferring to keep their secrets. Dun dun dun! Dun dun dun! 
Do you believe it? Well, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say maybe there was like some weird rapey guy who was breaking into her room at night. (laughs) There was a guy who like kind of (laughs) rapey. Well, like, why would I? Why? It's just scratching at the lock. Let me in for that vagina. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Give me the pooting. Like, through the window. Leave me alone. I said no. Like, I don't know. I'm going to say no. Yeah, I'm going to say no. Because I don't know. (laughs) You're ridiculous. (laughs) I'm not the one with long, bony fingers. Yes, you are. Well, I have short crooked fingers <laughs> i have fingers that's the only thing that's similar but it was a fun read yes <laughs> it was much I, shorter than mine yes much uh i just have a little like t- teeny tiny fluff piece today <laughs> exactly compared compared to my usual lengthly <laughs> lengthily lengthly fluff pieces i picked this one because i thought it was really funny how this happens it's horrifying she's like oh this weird thing's just picking at my window it's nothing it's like going after the lock (laughs) and then she comes back (laughs) no she's like let's just try this again and see what happens she's like i knew i know what happened once but what if now hear me out what if it it happened twice (laughs) (laughs) we could get to the bottom of this bitch oh god oh but that is the end of my story and that is the end of our episode. Yes, yes it is. So, tune in next week. And let's spin the wheel of crime to figure out what crime topic we're covering next time. Oh, yes. Would you like to do the honors, Em? I absolutely would. What are we covering next week, Em? Next week, we're covering witchcraft crimes. Ooh. That should be fun. I have an idea. I think of what I want to do, and I'm excited to share it with you. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to hear it. It's a stretch. It's always a stretch. (laughs) A stretch. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Wheel of Crime Mm -hmm. or Facebook.com slash Wheel of Crime. Mm-hmm. Or you can email us, wheelofcrime at gmail.com. Make sure you're checking your spelling, folks. Yes, because there's imposters out there. The imposters are lurking. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, we will be excited to bring back to you another new episode of our fun times next week. Yes, and this is Jen. And this is M. And goodbye. Signing and off. We are the Wheel, Wheel of Crime. Crime. TM. <laughs> TM TM <laughs> TM 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 <laughs> Okay bye